Good morning, everyone. My name is Karen Strub, and I'm the Vice President of Communications for Infrastructure Resources. I'd like to welcome you to the Excavation Safety Alliance Town Hall. And our topic today is how do you track the two true total cost of a damage, not just the repair cost? Our ESA town halls are an open forum to discuss concerns and present potential solutions to improve damage prevention and excavation safety. A recording of this town hall will be posted on the ESA website along with a brief blog post. We also post the chat log. So if you don't want your comment or your name included, please include that with your post. And if you have a question during the town hall, please type it into the chat box or click the raise hand icon. Give us a few seconds and we'll give you permission to unmute yourself. To unmute, simply click on the microphone icon in the top right corner of your screen. Today's meeting is meant to be a discussion and you're all encouraged to ask questions and share solutions. Please do try to keep your comments brief to allow others time to interact. We will wrap up around 1130 Central, but we may continue the conversation with coffee and questions after a brief survey. I will now let Kelly introduce herself and our panelists. Thanks, Karen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Kelly Hines. I'm the Senior Claims Case Manager for ComEd, which is an electric utility in Northern Illinois. I've been with ComEd for 25 years. I'm on the board of directors for Julie, our Illinois One Call System, and I'm also an enforcement panel member for 811 Chicago. Um, I'd like to take a moment to introduce our panel members. So if you could, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's start with Bob Edwards. Uh, Bob Edwards, uh, Supervisor for Citizens Energy Group. We're located in Annapolis, Indiana. Uh, we're run as a trust. Our utilities include water, gas, sewer, steam, and chilled water. Uh, I'm in the water industry and have been for 44 years. Uh, I have, oh, 10 employees that work under me. They're non-union. They uh, oversee leaks leak survey and mainly uh, the contractors that uh, does our locating. Uh, Samco locating does our locates. They do gas, water, and sewer. Uh, so I have a, a team of guys over, you know, back check them, uh, take care of the untonables, that kind of stuff. Uh, my guys react to the damages. Gotcha. Uh, other than that, it's just constantly uh, protecting the, the integrity of our system. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Uh, Dane Lobb. Good morning. My name is Dane Lobb. I'm with Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, I'm a supervisor over our damage prevention, public awareness and damage recovery teams. I work in the damage prevention organization, which is uh, located in Mark. Uh, we do both gas and electric at PG&E. Uh, we do located Mark public awareness, uh, metric reporting, uh damage prevention and damage recovery so uh i kind of capture i i have touch points with each of the different organizations within the damage prevention and then i report all the metrics up to our board of directors and all the steps in between so we uh we provide a daily weekly monthly quarterly and annual reports out so on any given day our leadership can get a sense of where we're having problems, whether it's in a particular city jurisdiction or enterprise-wide. 
Back to you, Kelly. Thanks, Dane. Andrea Stainback. Hi, Andrea Stainback. I've been in the telecommunications industry close to 30 years. Uh, 15 of those years, I was in uh, cost recovery and damage collection. Um, and then I've recently switched roles in the last couple of years to more of an emphasis on locate vendor management and damage prevention. Um, in that role, I work hand in hand with our locate providers. Um, and I'm also uh, now on a couple of the 811 boards. So doing a lot of work with those. And then also trying to be on the subcommittees for the one call boards to help with damage prevention and those those aspects. So I feel like I'm in a lot of different roles and I'm also um, heavily involved with the NTDPC and the CGA. I'm also DIRT Data Co-Chair, which uh, talks about our damage prevention information and data collection, uh, and then um, heavily involved also in the Global Excavation Safety Conference. So thanks, Perfect. Kelly. Thank you. Mark Seaton. Thanks, Kelly. So it's Mark Seaton. I'm the president of uh, JNR Adjustment Company and a third-party administrator called uh, the Claim Center. We, um, I've been in, in this uh, industry for about 38 years, and it's all on the recovery side of the business. We represent, my company represents over 70 gas, electric, fiber, and uh, telecom clients nationwide. We have about, um, about 250 employees whose focus is our, on various aspects of working with our uh, public utility uh, or facility owner clients in recovering the uh, repair costs. So uh, this, this is probably the number two topic that we work with with our clients, the number one topic being the investigation um, but uh, the repair cost is constantly on the mind of all of our clients. And so we feel that this is uh, a really good town hall to get uh, the industry together to discuss uh, what is being accomplished, what uh, hasn't been, and uh, how we can improve the process. Excellent. Back to you. Thank you, Mark. Well, it looks like we've got a great panel, and uh, so thank you, panel members and participants, for joining our discussion today. Uh, just a really quick disclaimer, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, we're citing anecdotal stories and hypothetical situations. Uh, these discussions and observations are meant to recognize and appreciate companies that have a damage prevention program, and we encourage all companies to invest in and be proactive in their damage prevention efforts. When we think of damage prevention, um, we normally think about it as a safety measure. Today, we're going to discuss why we should also be considering damage prevention as a cost savings measure. We should always ensure that we have a safe work plan to avoid damage on every project. And every damage, no matter what type of utility, can be an exposure for not only an injury or a fatality, but can also put a strain on your company's finances depending upon what you hit, when you hit it, and the uh, how much material and labor go into the repair. Um, but the cost of these damages can be significantly underestimated. We're going to discuss what we're seeing out there in terms of the true cost of damages and what we can do individually, corporately, and as industry leaders to reverse those trends. 
I'd like to explore some of those examples, but first let's underscore that safety should be everyone's number one priority, or you risk the ultimate cost of a damage. Anyone that watched the recent Monday night football game and witnessed the injury of the player that required immediate life-saving response on the field, we can all agree that the impact of an injury or fatality is traumatic and life-changing, not only for the injured employee, but for the crew or the general public that may have witnessed the event, uh, the family, friends, and coworkers of the injured or deceased employee who must deal with the loss, um, and there may be fines and penalties and lawsuits associated with those events that cause injury or death. So preventing that unrecoverable cost is paramount. And I think we can all agree that that is our number one uh, thing that we want to avoid. Right. So I think we can skip over that. But let's talk about um, the cost of repairs out there. So besides the cost of repair to the facility itself, can you give us some ideas of the things that we might not think about that might be associated with the damage? Mark, let's start with you. And Mark, you're on mute, I'm sorry. Thank you, I forgot I muted myself. Um, thank you. So in each industry, there are components to a loss that may not be included. And as an example, I'll just touch on a couple in the uh, electric power distribution industry, we have something called service assurance warranties or SAWS. Uh, these are not typically included when uh, pursuing a recovery on, a, uh, on an electric damage, but they're a very real component of the loss. Um, and it's the same in other markets. So we have uh, lost product in the gas market or maybe a customer loss or loss of uh, redundancy, which may not necessarily knock anybody down, but may overload circuits or cause um, a vulnerability uh, to um, FAA or the Department of Defense or you know some other area in that. So there's a there there certainly are a lot of costs that we don't normally think of in regard to uh, reimbursement of hard costs and those that are obvious. Okay. Bob, how about you? Uh, well, at Citizens Energy Group, we utilize uh, uh, Microsoft OneDrive, and it kind of prompts you to uh, track all your your costs that's involved in the damage, uh, your labor, labor hours, the administration costs, uh, pictures are taken, can be downloaded into this uh, Microsoft OneDrive uh it's real-time share files so the people in the office can see uh, what's going on at at the very time you're you're logging the stuff in uh each water line is uh or damage is given a page job for tracking uh, associated expenses uh that we've in, encountered they include uh, your cut permits your traffic control, error board, signage, excavation, shoring rental, triaxle dump truck rental, uh, light tower rental, additional pumps, vacuum excavator, subcontractor help. Uh, we've had occasions where we had had telephone pole holding, uh, damage site cleanup uh, in the winter months, uh, street salting, 
uh, water restoration if crawl spaces and basements are flooded. And there's been a couple occasions where we've rented portalettes. So you want to track all these costs because, you know, it's, it just hits your bottom dollar. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are great examples. Thanks, Bob. How about you, Dane? What What are you seeing out there besides the cost of the facility um, in regard to things that are associated with those damages? So I'd say first and foremost, number one above everything else is the loss of trust. When we lose the trust of our customers and of our regulators, it we take a hit. You know, we're uh, very well scrutinized at PG&E. I think probably everyone knows our name and not necessarily because of the great things that we do, but because of some of our fails. So the loss of trust of our customers is first and foremost in my mind. Even when we're not, PG&E is not the cause of the fail, our repair trucks show up to take care of the damages and we're associated with that damage. And so, you know, everyone now has a cell phone and they become local reporters and they'll videotape us. And, you know, the, the obvious thing of three guys standing around watching one guy with a shovel, you know, and that that always makes it onto the social media or to the news. And that loss of trust from our customers when they see a rate increase uh, really bears uh sadly and, and negatively on our company. So I, I put the biggest one is the loss of trust and then the damage to our reputation. And then there's a societal cost. If you lose gas or electric, it impacts your ability to do the job. If we were to, any of us were to lose electricity right now, you know, it's going to take a few, uh, maybe 30 seconds or 60 seconds for my generator to kick in and I'm gone. I'm out of this meeting. I have to go back in. And there are many people who are performing critical tasks that rely heavily on our gas and electricity, and that loss uh, will damage our reputation. So it's really important that we keep that in first and foremost in mind. Yeah, those are some great examples and hard to recover on some of those, right? Andrea, how about you? What are you seeing? Uh, you know, it's funny because I, I really like Dane's answer. I never said the word trust. I would probably say for my industry, it's more reliability. Um, but I like the word he used with trust um, because obviously I'm kind of in the same situation, especially now being in the telecom cable industry. So many individuals are working from home now and completely rely wholeheartedly on the network um, to do their jobs. So um, if, if the network goes down due to a damage, I mean, that's, you know, not even just homeowners and and small and large businesses, but you're talking individuals like Google, Facebook, you know, all, all the high profile providers that are out there that are really trying to keep us um, our, our social media going for that aspect. But a couple of other things that I did think about, because um, Robert did have a, quite a list that I was impressed about, is some of the things that you know. I have seen over the years is, and I'll take the hurricane, for example, even though that was a force majeure kind of situation, but the cost for hotels, the cost for meals that, you know, companies have to pay for travel, you know, all of those are expenses that go into the damage world that have to be paid out um, and could potentially be recovered, for, you know, obviously, for smaller types of damages. Um, the fuel, you know, if there's issues, for instance, in, in, the in the telecom world where we still have pulp paper cable, 
we have to keep that kind of thing dry. So we're constantly running generators to pump air on that to make sure that that cable is staying as dry as it can in, in the outside elements that we're in. So there really is a lot of different piece and pieces and parts to all the different damages that you kind of take for granted, but are really there as an expense that we have to try to recover and, and, and absorb as a company. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people see, you know, when once they get the invoice, they're like, what? I just, you know, I, all I hit was a cable. Um, like for our electric utility, it if it's just the line, you know, we can splice it uh, and be done with it. But sometimes we don't have the resources to work that immediately. So, right, we switch to restore our customers. We backfill that damage. Now we've got to come back and we've got to uh, re-expose that facility, right? So that's a cost. Um, uh so was it just the line or did they damage the transformer that fed the line too? Uh, were there customer outages and um, did the customers incur any lost business like a restaurant during dinner time or a nail salon on a Saturday morning, right? Those are costs that those customers will come back to our utility to look to recover as well. So anytime we're finding somebody at fault on a damage, you know, all of those costs need to be thought about as well, right? When damages do occur, there may be many people affected by the damage. Um, first, the crew that damaged the line loses productivity, right, by having to shut down the job site and wait for all the impacted parties to arrive and investigate. Uh, this includes troubleshooters for the utility to assess the damage, uh, locators that may be taken off of somebody else's scheduled work, right, to come to your hit line or your to repair ticket, uh, customers on the line whose homes and businesses day-to-day uh, -day operations have been disrupted. And some of these costs can be recovered. Some of them cannot be recovered. Can you um, give us some examples of costs that may be recoverable as part of the damage? And Dane, let's start with you. Thank you, Kelly. Um, we're very blessed in California because we're heavily regulated. We, uh, we get a little bit of a pushback. So we actually have a law on in the books that allows us to recover all of our costs associated with the repair. So if a third party damages one of our uh, assets, we're allowed to collect all the costs that are associated with the repair. And that means from the time we get the call until the time we're back at the uh, office. So we're very, very, very fortunate. Uh, the biggest cost, and they seem to go up every year, when, we, when I first started looking at this, we our overhead costs were about 25%. Our overhead costs have gone almost close to 40% now of the total claim that we're gonna file against someone. So if you get a $5,000 bill, it's probably gonna be closer to $10,000 when we add in the overhead cost. And we've just gotten a lot better at tracking those overheads. So you think about admin costs, but there's really other hidden costs that most people don't think about. You have to have a building where you keep all of your materials. You have to have storage. You have to have someone who's working there to provide the materials. You have to have someone who maintains your vehicles, the fuel for the vehicles, workers' comp cost, uh, retirement cost. Uh, those employees are all, all of those employees have different uh, labor unions, which we have to pay for the labor union cost. So all of those costs are kind of bundled together and they're not really thought about. We've really gotten better at identifying those overheads that previously weren't included and been allowed by our regulators to include those hidden overhead costs. 
but you'd really be surprised as the list of overheads that come into it. So we're, as I said, we're very fortunate compared to a lot of other uh, areas around the country that I've talked to. Right. Um, Andrea, what what type of costs are most recoverable for for the damages that you're seeing out there? Yeah, that's a great question. In the past, the telecom industry has just, I think, been a little bit different from that aspect. I would say the two top priority, well, I'll say three. The three top main costs being able to be to be able to be collected would be our internal labor, our external labor, which would be for our line extension partners, any of our subcontractors, because obviously we don't repair all of our stuff. We hire individuals that are experts, our engineers and that kind of thing to drop some of our plans when they have things are damaged to get redone. Um, and then our material. Those are the three top things, because obviously if something is damaged, normally that has to be scrapped and new has to be replaced for it. So almost like a like for like situation. So those are the top three in our world that are, I would say, the most um, recoverable, even though we have um, done other things like with, like I think Dane mentioned about the admin costs, because those are true costs. I mean, our folks aren't just getting there on a magic carpet. They're having to drive there in their vehicles. They're having to use, you know, their laptops and their, um, you know, other pieces of equipment. A lot of them have specialized trucks that have all of this equipment on it to do these repairs. So those are very expensive vehicles and trucks. So all of those are true costs that should be incorporated into the recoverable piece of it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that, Andrea. Mark, what are you seeing out there as far as recoverable costs? Well, in each industry, it's a little different. Um, you know, in the, um, in the uh, water and gas, and uh, petroleum and noxious chemical side of the business, there's going to be lost product. And how you, um, you know, equate that financially, is it just the reimbursement, the, the cost that, that, that you paid for it, or is it at the rate at which you would have sold it to your customer base? So there's, that's one part of it. On the uh, telecom and fiber side of it, there, um, there's, um, Costs associated with uh, lost customers or uh, customer credits that might uh, might be available, and that's a that can be really a significant loss. And um, um, one thing that's discussed um, in our industry is loss of use, and uh, that is a component um, that is recognized and has been recognized for over 200 years in our country. The loss of the right to use your property. Uh, the way you wish, including to make a profit. So those are some areas that uh, are available. Another area is uh, overtime labor, um, especially on the uh, electric side of it, as, as, as no doubt Dane would acknowledge, uh, uh, frequently uh, above ground facilities are damaged in the evening uh, and on weekends. There is a tremendous cost to gas and especially electric utilities in rolling out repair costs in the evening and weekend. This usually accounts for uh, labor uh, double double time and labor. Um, it uh, can really um, put a stress on uh, electric utility as it relates to uh, to uh, to staffing. But uh, there's some real costs when you think about uh, some of the. Um, uh, above ground facility and, and the types of bucket trucks or, or equipment that's needed to roll out and the people that are needed is a considerable amount of overtime 
uh, at a very inconvenient time during the workday or the week. Yeah, we see that a lot as well. Um, and that's a lot to think about. Thanks, Mark. How about you, Bob? What What are you seeing as far as recoverable damage, uh, recoverable costs on the damages to your water facilities? Well, without repeating several, you know, what I mentioned earlier and what Dane mentioned, uh, the only other major recoverable is be the, uh, what Mark mentioned, uh, the loss of our water. Now, if it's during the day, we typically can get there pretty fast and and do the shutout and, and not lose a whole lot of the water. But it's, now, if it's a, a complicated shutout, there may be millions of gallons lost. You know, we, we've got to recover some of that cost. We've had a few of those in in the in my past years. I had one three years ago. It's really bad. But uh, but yeah, you know, it's the recovering the and we don't go after that cost unless there's a significant amount loss. That's good to know. That's good to know. Um, I see Karen has her hand up. Karen? Yes. So we had a couple comments come in from the chat. So one point that Betsy made was a lot of below ground dig-ins happen on the weekends when people are doing their home landscaping and the DIY projects that they have, which I think is a very good point to bring up. Um, there's a couple questions that I'll address and then Kelly, I'll have you kind of disperse them if that's okay. Sure. So Kurt Young asked how many of the panels support the economic loss doctrine that are in some states and why? Um, I think we'll go to that one and then I can come back to Ed's question after that. So the economic loss doctrine, I'm not familiar with it. I don't know if if the panel members are and could could speak to that. So Kurt, they are unfamiliar. Is it possible, Levi, that we could unmute uh, Kurt Young, Kurt Young's excavating? And Kurt, if you are comfortable, perhaps we'll have you kind of fill the panel in and and we can begin the discussion there. Yeah, I've just uh, allowed your mic, Kurt. So you can unmute yourself when you're ready. While we're giving Kurt a, a moment, Kurt, if you do feel comfortable speaking about the economic loss doctrine, um, just raise your hand and we can we can go back to that point. But then another comment that we had was that the customers affected should be the customers affected should be most important materials tech time to repair wages expenses admin customer compensation and or credit um and then we also had a comment that all the labor costs need to be based on the loaded employee cost a wage might be 35 dollars per hour but loaded could be over 100 dollars per hour by the time everything is is calculated uh, so I see everybody nodding in agreement with that. Andrea, you were the first. I don't know if you want to speak on that piece. Yeah, I totally agree with that. We've obviously I saw that that came from Tony and I've worked with him many, many years on, on several cases that have had litigation. So he's right, because at the end of the day, that is absorbing all of those external costs that are going around that specific technician. Going back to what I was just saying earlier, and I think Dane and Nick others alluded to the same thing is that's kind of absorbing that truck that that individual is driving, all of the the his labor, his um his cost for um his um, additional salary, vacation, all those components go into that loaded labor rate. So that's kind of basically saying this is what it takes to have that guy in that vehicle doing that job every day. So yes, I totally agree with that. 
I think that's a great point. Um, Kurt is ready to unmute. So Kurt, if you want to unmute and, and fill in, fill in our group on the economic loss doctrine, that would be appreciated. Sure, it'll just be in the the upper right of your screen there to, to unmute. Levi, do we have the ability to un unmute him? Uh, all I can do is allow the mic. I can't unmute. Okay, him. I'll keep looking. Um, Kurt, when you when you do have that unmuted, you can just begin speaking and let us know that you're there as there's a pause in the conversation. Um, Kemp Garcia uh, out of Washington had said the loaded cost should go both ways for the contractor when he digs into an unmarked or mismarked utility. So that that brings in up the part of the conversation that that we typically get to, which will deal with the locating um, and the marking of the utilities and kind of the, the root cause of why the damage happened. So if somebody wants to talk about kind of those unmarked, mismarked utilities and, and going back for the cost at that point. Yeah, I will right. sure jump in on that one. Um, so, you know, all of that is combined with the cost, right? So um, whatever costs are involved with the damage itself, whomever the utility finds at fault, whether it was a mismarked line um, or whether it was an accurately marked line, you know, that whomever is at fault is going to incur get the bill for all of those costs that we're discussing today, right? And so what we're trying to show is that, you know, it's not just the cost of the repair of the line. There are other costs that are associated with it that you might not um, recognize, right? Or that you might not budget, right? All of these overhead labor costs, right? We we deal with this quite often with our um, with attorneys and litigation and uh, customers coming back, excavators, whatever, coming back and saying, well, you know, why is it, you know, just hypothetically $300 an hour for your crew members? They certainly don't make $300 an hour, right? Well, that is true. But we also have the cost of our trucks, the cost of the repair of those trucks, you know, benefits to our employees. There are buildings that we operate out of, and all of those costs are built into those, so into those labor costs. So I, I, I think that, um, you know, anytime anybody's billed, all of these costs are all rolled into it, and it goes against whomever is at fault, whether it be the contractor, the homeowner, the locator, uh, it's all the same. Um, would you uh, agree with that, Dane? Yeah, actually, I was thinking exactly the same thing, is all of those costs are built into it, but specifically for the customers, I'm sorry, for the people who dig in, there's the downtime cost impact us, and it is part of the whole cost to of doing business. We, we pay out I, I I don't want to say the number because it's large, but we pay out a lot in downtime claims um, on a on a regular basis. So when we're at fault for uh, mismarking, then the uh, excavator has the opportunity to file a downtime claim against us. And we treat those just like we treat a claim that we seek recovery on. We we try to be as equitable as possible. When we're responsible for that uh, fail, then we take responsibility for it and we ask them to provide their uh, cost 
And sometimes uh, when they're honest brokers, then we're happy to pay the full cost. Uh, as long as they're not trying to be ridiculous in the, the padding, we had 200 people on site and we had to shut down the job and our photographs show that they had three. So uh, occasionally we'll have some pushback, but overall, um, we we want to be equitable on both sides to build and maintain that trust. And I think James Wingate has a couple of questions, so I'm I'm happy to address his two questions when he uh, does. when it comes around to me. Perfect, um, Kelly. It looks like uh, Kurt is is ready to go off of mute to talk about the economic loss doctrine. And then once Kurt's finished, I would like to circle back to the questions that James has. There's one for the panel at large, and then I believe one for Dane. So I'll we'll go through those. But Kurt, you are available to go off mute. Great. Uh, the economic loss doctrine, essentially, uh, unless there's a, a serious injury or death, the contractor cannot go for any claims. So, you know, obviously California doesn't have that, but Indiana uh, does. So uh, the contractor here is at a disadvantage. So if if the locator messed up or, you know, the records were wrong and uh, a line gets struck and the contractor, you know, suffers losses we cannot recover in, in our state uh, and we've been trying to change that but uh, <laughs> the facility owners vehemently oppose that because they think it'll lead to frivolous lawsuits when in fact uh, most contractors the last thing they ever want to do is file a lawsuit so uh, just curious for those that operate in the states that do have the economic loss doctrine what your stance is and I, I want to make sure that I, I understood that completely. Um, so what you're saying is that uh, this doesn't allow you to recover costs unless there is an injury or fatality? That is correct. So is it just the downtime or the cost of the repair altogether? Anything. Uh, if, if the contractor was not at fault, but we've suffered a loss, we cannot uh, file a claim to recover unless there was an injury or death. Hmm. Well, I'll be the first one to say that no, I would not agree with that. We've, we, we'd be out of business if we couldn't collect on the cost of repair to our facilities. That's just my um, opinion. Well, Bob, the, the, Bob, what are your? I'm sorry. The go facility ahead. owner is allowed to c collect, but the contractor that struck it through no fault of his own cannot. Okay, so unless there is. Um, unless there is an injury or fatality, a contractor, even if it, even if the line is damaged through their fault, they cannot, uh, or I'm sorry, even if the damage is, is caused by something other than their fault, they cannot recover the downtime. So am correct. I understanding that correctly? That okay. is correct. Bob, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I knew that was the case. Uh, you know, we, uh, in the water side of the business, uh, our locating company has done a, a very good job over the last eight years of, of uh, locates. You know, for example, last year, they had 230,782 locates and had two miss marks. Wow. And those two miss marks did not result into a damage. Uh, well, actually, they did, yeah, they did result to a damage, but they were homeowners. There wasn't a business involved. Uh, and they've done what one million four hundred some thousand in eight years and uh, compiled only thirty two damage or thirty two miss marks. So That's impressive. 
on the water side, they, they do a very good job and that helps us, you know, on, on this uh, topic right here. Yeah. Mark, what about you? What, what are your thoughts on that doctrine? Never heard of it before. Uh, but then again, we don't represent contractors. We represent the utility owner. Gotcha. Andrea? I'm kind of in the same situation as Mark. I had never heard of that before, so I don't know that I could really give a lot of feedback on that. That's interesting, though, that he brought that up. What, yeah, I wrote well, that down. I want to look into that more for sure. Well, you're lobbyist. You're well aware of it. <laughs> I wrote down the same thing, and and I look forward to having an article in an upcoming issue of the magazine where perhaps I can kind of have a, not necessarily point counterpoint, but have a couple different viewpoints represented from those that would be impacted by this and certainly capturing the the contractor voice for this sure yeah so right. um if if it's all right i'll go to the questions from james wingate the first um is for the panel it says at the 811 contact center in northern california we receive complaints from excavators about damage claims being used as a revenue stream for example a cut to a copper phone cable gets replaced by fiber so the telco company gets its asset upgraded at the cost of the excavator who was found liable for the damage. What is your response to that? So, yep, I had a feeling that it was. <laughs> oh, we've got a couple. All right, here we um, go. I'll go first if that's okay. So that's a good question, James. And and a lot of damagers, excavators, et cetera, do have this um, assumption that telecoms are using betterment um, in replacing their plant. Um, what they don't realize is, is like a lot of things with this industry that started in the last hundred years was that there was not a lot of pre-planning that things were not going to be available anymore. So for instance, if I'm still driving a 1980s car and I need a visor for that car, I'm probably not going to be able to find that exact same visor for that car. So as time has evolved, as plant industry um, fiber has come along, um, there's not a lot of these items still available. A great example is pulp paper cable does not go in the ground anymore. If you don't touch it, it's going to do just fine and do the job. But it's been there for a long time, decades upon decades upon decades. So now when it gets destroyed, if it's not able to be fixed, we have to go to what is available today. And sometimes it's cheaper than what that was. It costs way more money to fix a pulp paper cable than put fiber in the ground. So even though sometimes we have to change up sizes of cables that are not available anymore because they've gotten larger and bigger, it doesn't mean necessarily that we're doing putting more traffic on there right now. It just means that that's all that there is available. And nine times out of 10, the cost is cheaper now than it is, would have been if we'd have tried to replace like for like for that same stuff that we can't get our hands on anymore. So that's just my feedback. Uh, Mark? I won't say that I've never seen it, but I will say that Andrea hit it out of the park. It is exactly what she says. In addition to that, there are other things that go into play, such as permits, uh, permanent repairs. Uh, the, I've seen cables go through the middle of a lake and environmental laws are different now and you cannot either get the, that type of equipment any longer or you can't put it there again so you have to go around the lake or you have to go around the road or around the freeway or around or over the bridge um 
who the, the individual who wrote, raised this question, I applaud that question. I think that's fantastic. Everyone should um, certainly look through the invoice carefully and they have the right to ask questions. But an 80, a large claim, a large dollar uh, repair cost does not equate to betterment. And usually, really honestly, almost always, there are very good explanations for why. Yeah, I can add on to that a little bit. Um, you know, we have a lot of facilities in duct work, especially in the city of Chicago. Um, that's not something that you can just splice and be done with it. You have to pull out that entire span of cable between the pole and the switchgear, the pole and the manhole, uh, whatever the situation may be. So it it's not just the cost of repair for that particular um, area. We have to replace the entire span of cable. And if it's a copper cable, you know, um, then that's what it is, you know. And, and so those costs can be a lot higher than what you would normally expect with just a normal splice. So let me uh, let me jump on here really quick. Yes. Uh, so in California, Public Utility Code 7952 describes specifically what costs can be recovered, and profit is not part of those costs. We can only seek recovery on our actual cost for replacement or repair of the damaged section. So if I have to replace 400 feet of uh, utility, I can only, but only one foot was damaged, I can only charge for the one foot. So in many cases, because we can't tease that out, we'll actually cancel the claim altogether and eat those costs ourselves uh, because it, it becomes too cumbersome to break out the one foot when we replaced 400 feet. So in, in the vast majority of cases, uh, we lose money. And because these are civil torts in California, I, I don't know if anyone's ever gone to court, but you almost never get 100% of what you file a claim for. So there is, I, I've never had a year where we even got close to our actual cost. We lose, we lose money every day and we end up having to write those losses off. So there, there's absolutely no profit here in California. And those costs are heavily litigated. If you've ever dealt with an insurance company, uh, they literally go line by line with forensic accountants to torture us and say, prove this 75 cent uh, expense here. Yeah, exactly. Bob, did you have something to add to that? Well, I've been down the same road with Dane, but in the in our business, you know, Water line gets damaged, we'll do a spot repair. And spot repair is usually the, replacing the piece of pipe and a couple of couplings. We're not replacing anything more than that. Fire hydrant gets damaged. It's if the lower barrel is damaged, you're replacing the whole fire hydrant. You know, typically it, with brake rings, you're just replacing the upper section. Now service lines, if a service gets hit by like directional boring crew, we make those uh, contractors get a bonded plumber replaced from the tap to the property line or the meter pit. Because we found in the past that uh, you don't know what happened to that copper service. Maybe at the tap it, it kinked, and you know, where there was a leak going on at the tap, or the meter got yanked to the bottom of the pit, or so that's why we have a whole new service put in, so it keeps us from having to go back on this on that particular damage again and again. Yeah, 
So no, we're not out there to yeah, we're not there to replace any significant amount of pipers or or assets. You know, if we damage a a, a valve, here's a good example. If we uh, break a valve in the shutout, we don't put that on the contractor. That's our own fault. We had a valve in there didn't operate properly. If we create another main break in the shutout or a joint leak, you know, we'll repair that and not put that on the contractor. We only home in on just what he repaired or were damaged. That was an excellent question. Thank you. The next the next part of that question is that Dane had spoke spoke about the loss of trust. Another com <clears throat> complaint we hear is that some utility operator operators are unwilling to compromise on damages when both parties are at fault. For example, if the ticket were expired by one day, but the damaged asset was mismarked by four feet, some excavators complain that they'll get the full bill when it should be split. So where are the comments uh, or what are the comments on that? I'll start and just say that, you know, we have to apply things universally and consistently, and that means following the law. So if you don't have a valid dig ticket, you don't have a valid dig ticket. And that's really what it comes down to for us. You know, and that's the only way that we can remain consistent on how we bill out our damages, making sure that we're following the law and, you know, anybody that didn't follow the law, um, you know, we will we'll process that claim accordingly. Mark? And I, and I would say that we are very good listeners. Um, and we and our law firms that we work with uh, want to uh, give the um, adverse party an opportunity to explain that and to express that and to come to the table. And um, I I can honestly say that it would be a very rare instance when we weren't willing to negotiate. Andrew, how about you? I would agree with Mark, and I was just getting ready to think the same thing. A lot of it comes down to when you're in those litigation cases, um, or if there's multiple contractors out there. We have, you know, done done exactly what Mark just said. But to his point, you really have to listen to the scenario and the situation, and each case can almost be a little bit different based on what has happened because that sub could have hired another sub, which hired another sub, and. The stories go on and on and on. I feel like it's algebra sometimes with if Dan statements, but it, it truly is a situation like that. And you also have to look at the time of the events as well. So, yeah. Bob, how about you? Well, with what you said, I, we're in the same uh, same agreement. That the first step is, uh, do you have a valid dig ticket? You, know, you don't get to go to step two if you don't have the valid dig, dig ticket. So, yeah. I just feel like, you know, um, if we did it here now for this one, we would have to do it again later. And so that's when we get into into a problem, right, where we're being uh, where we're favoring maybe one contractor over another. And to Dane's point, we never I mean, almost never collect 100 percent of the damages. Right. We're always yeah. negotiating, um, you know, to get that settlement. So, I mean, we understand that these situations happen, uh, but but that's how we our company applies it just, you know, by following the law. Another question coming in, um, this is going back to when we had, were discussing kind of the, the costs, but are the indirect costs, such as the loss of trust, the damage to the reputation that we've talked about, or the re reliability, are those estimated and tracked similarly to direct costs and incorporated into your decision making? 
I can I can address that. Mm-hmm. So we have a ongoing customer survey, customer satisfaction score. So we get a weekly customer satisfaction score that we that our leadership and our board of directors looks at very closely. And it's important that uh, we work with our customers, whether it's in a damage claim case or an installation case, we always want to put our customers first. We want to try to rebuild that trust with our customers. And we want to have that feedback from them and know that we're listening. And in every case, we listen first, then we'll negotiate, and then we'll come to some meaningful agreement where both parties are satisfied. Uh, we're we're going to have to work with this customer down the road. So we don't, you never want to burn that bridge. You always want to leave the conversation where both sides feel like they reached and got what they hope to out of the conversation. Andrea, did you want to add to that? I'm sorry, Mark, go ahead. Go, I, I mean, don't interrupt Andrea on that. I, I was just going to say, um, Internally, I feel like we're almost holding our own selves to some metrics with regards to that. Um, you know, when when we have a fiber cut, you know, we're constantly having to pick that apart. What happened? How did it happen? Where do we need to look? What can we do better next time? Because we, it's like going back to the reality. Uh, reliability and the customer satisfaction that Dane just mentioned. So that goes up to an executive level, level at my company, and we are picking that apart. And we do have to read out there, read out on that monthly. And our goal is to have a fewer and fewer amount of those where those are those child cases affected and that kind of thing. So we don't have to worry about that. So I don't know that we're putting a measure on that externally for our customers, but we're definitely doing it internally. So we're looking at that. Go ahead, Mark. So I, I think this is a great question also, the, um, and, and it's different for a, a, um, a gas, electric, or water utility that is, is likely not, you, the customer is not likely going to migrate to someone else. Uh, it's true, they, there, there is some significant concern that the utility has about a loss of trust and a damage to the reputation. Um, for those, um, I would like to say in their defense, they do a lot in the community to try to build customer confidence. And we see a lot of near misses or a lot of nicks, a lot of uh, uh, crushed conduit where the facility itself was not damaged. There's a lot of training that goes on, damage prevention training. I see our clients spend an enormous amount of money on uh, cooperation in um damage prevention industries um, to build on that um, trust and reputation. So commendable. On the telecom and fiber side of it, there's a real loss of of a customer base. Um, it's completely different because you can go from uh, company A to company B and um, it's a very competitive market. They're never able to really fully overcome that loss of trust or that loss or damage to the reputation? Yeah, I would agree. That's a great question. Is that, I, I see there's a couple of other questions out there, Karen. There are. So uh, going back to the one that we were talking about, the second part of James's question of if the ticket was late, Kemp Garcia, who I know is with Nuka Washington State, but he says, as an excavator, I agree it needs to be consistent. If a ticket has expired and a damage occurs properly located or not, it is on the excavator. 
Um, we also have another question that came in that says, I have a parallel question to costs. What preemptive measures do companies implement to prevent damage to underground utility lines and reduce the risk of service interruptions? How do companies justify spending on preemptive measures? And prior to, to letting you guys answer, I will let you know, um, I believe it's Brenda, but she will speak up on behalf of Sue at times, but Sue in the planning and design phase poses the best solution as a preemptive measure for all stakeholders. Um, is just a comment that I think Sue is very important to to get that part out there. But the question, what preemptive measures do you, do the companies put in place? Um, Kelly, if you want to. Yeah, uh, well, I can speak for ComEd and we have a very robust damage prevention program. Um, we spend a lot of our time out educating uh, uh, around safety awareness, the dangers involved with you know, underground excavation, how we can work together, providing contact information, not only for our damage prevention team, but also for our locate uh, vendor, whether it be in the city of Chicago um, or outside in the suburbs. Um, we also have a program for, you know, difficult to locate or unlocatable facilities where uh, I had seen kind of in the comment where we may um, reach out to the excavator to help us to explore in those types of situations, right? If you can pothole, find the facility that we're having a difficult time locating, um, you know, we may may piggyback on that, see if we can't, you know, take that that locate farther. Um, but for us, it's a, we, we have a very robust damage prevention program where we educate on damage prevention. Um, that's really how, you know, how we work. But there are some other other underlying things that we also need to get our hands on, right? Making sure that our mapping is up to date and accurate, um, making sure that our uh, the rest of our company and organizations aren't working in a silo and understand damage prevention going forward, right? For our engineers, um, you know, where, when they're designing these projects, you know, going through Sue or the design stage of the um, of the locate to get an understanding of what other utilities are out there and designing my plan and my project around those existing facilities, right? For us, that's that's always going to be the best opportunity to understand what is going on out there, right? Have the most up-to-date knowledge um, and then come up with a safe work plan to prevent those damages. Um, how about you, uh, Bob? Uh, well, I got inspectors that go out to in the field and. Uh, we work with the contractors, especially the out-of-state contractors, and educate them how to work around our facilities, uh, how to properly do potholes. That's 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 a big deal there. We got a book. It's a we hand out to uh, contractors. It's a it's a just a little Indiana 811 uh, booklet, and this little booklet explains all the rules of. Uh, you know, uh, digging around utilities in, in Indiana. Uh, we'll uh, help the contractors you know, get extra uh, training if they would like to. Uh, uh, Indiana 811 goes around and they do trainings at uh, different uh, facilities throughout the year uh, through the IURC, uh, Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. Uh, we talked to him about our Midwest Damage Prevention Training Conference uh, that we hold in uh, French Lake every year, and uh, try to get you know more and more contractors to attend that training session. Uh, and we point out CEG, you know, Citizen Energy Group. We have a website that uh, 
explains all our rules and, and uh, standards of uh, let's say a service was damaged, how to put that service back together. And but all our rules and standards are all in in the website. So you know, we work with uh, like I said, any contractor we can to, to help them be you know do their job better. Yeah, that's a great program, Andrea. How about you? Um, yeah, so just in the last year, um, our a team was put together um, that actually is doing damage prevention um, at Lumen and CenturyLink. Um, they are actually looking at daily reports. Um, I know there's a lot of different things going on in the industry right now with risk scoring um, related to your locates. We're looking at things like that. Um, there's individuals um, that are basically now working hand in hand with contractors and excavators um, daily. If they're seeing issues about tickets not being located, they're calling our locate company. So it's almost like back in the day when you used to have those tailgate conversations, it's almost like that's all starting again, trying to get in front of things before they actually happen. Um, and looking at those risks and looking at the things in a high congested area that might need more of some person, people online to help kind of sit there and watch and facilitate the actual digging and locating and that kind of thing and just partnering with each other. So we've really seen a good success with that um, over the last year that, that the individuals on my team have worked really hard on that. So that's going really strong for us and I'm seeing a lot of good positive aspects for that. Yeah. Jane, how about you? What is, I'm sorry, Mark, uh, what is PG&E uh, doing? Um, thanks, Kelly. I, I agree with pretty much what most of the rest of the teams are doing. I I could probably speak for the entire time on our program, but I'll just touch on a few things. Our, we've really ramped up our social media outreach uh, for public awareness. We believe that we have to reach is the broader audience whenever possible. So we have a, a big footprint in the social media arena. Um, and it's, it's much more cost effective than mailing someone who it's gonna end up in their garbage can anyway. So what we've discovered is if I put up a billboard in front of your house, you may not see what's on that billboard uh, until it's gonna be relevant to you. So we feel that it's important to constantly hammer that message, hammer that message, hammer that message about safe excavation. Probably one of our most effective programs has been our safe excavation workshops. Uh, we have a team of folks who will show up at your facility if you're a contractor and provide a free workshop on safe excavation best practices and how to be successful and reduce the cost and really explain what the impact of their company would be by having a line strike. Uh, that it's not just your downtime that's gonna affect it, but it's the larger picture, the potential of someone becoming injured. So we offer that free workshop. We feel that that's really uh, one of the key drivers in helping us reduce our damages. Um, we also, uh, going back to social media, we do, a web, we do webinars, live webinars, where contractors specifically tailored for contractors and specifically tailored for homeowners. So I, I host, uh, uh, early morning at 7 a.m. for those contractors because they like to start their days early. And then for the homeowners, we started at a 10 a.m. on a Saturday. So we try to make sure that we're consistent uh, with the needs of our customer. And then we have posted those uh, uh, stories on YouTube, on other social media channels uh, so that we can get that messaging out. We believe in hitting all the bases 
and we're always receptive to anyone who says, hey, do you have a, have you ever posted on Nextdoor? Someone said that to us and we immediately jumped on Nextdoor with both feet and we have been posting on a weekly basis on Nextdoor uh, stories, actual stories of, uh, of a dig-in or event that happened in that zip code. So now we're sharing that story with the rest of the community that's local to that area. Those are all I, great ideas, Dane. Thank you so much. I know that we're at time right now. Um, yeah. So I'm going to hand this back over to Karen. I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of our uh, panelists today. And thank you for our participants. Um, it was a great discussion. Thank you, Kelly. So we are at time, but if you'd like to stay on and if our panel, panel members are able, we will have a short coffee and question session to address additional concerns. We have a lot more in the chat to discuss. Um, so. I will go ahead and volunteer that we will have a second topic about this, a second ESA town hall where we can continue this conversation and address those questions that we don't get to. Um, I would expect that at some point in March. So please take a moment now to fill out the brief survey that Levi will post in the chat so we can continue to improve these discussions and address the topics important to you. And on behalf of everyone at IR, I would like to thank you all for joining us. Again, a recording of the town hall will be posted on excavationsafetyalliance.com, where you'll also be able to register for future, future virtual town halls. However, next month, we will be having our very first ESA town hall live at the Global Excavation Safety Conference in Tampa. It will be held on Thursday, February 16th, where we're going to address the question, are we at peak damage prevention the way it's being done, and are there better ways? And that will be moderated by Jemmy Wang. For those of you considering joining us in Tampa for the Global ESC or if you're already registered, please note that first-time attendees can still take advantage of our $811 special, which is over 40% off of the on-site price. And also, hotels are filling up fast. So the room block deadline for the embassy suites is January 21st. The other hotel room blocks are either sold out or have expired. And to register for the conference and to book your hotel, please visit globalexcavationsafetyconference.com. I'll now go back to the chat and we can continue the conversation for those who would like to participate. Um, I did have one space held. So a lot of the, this is from Kurt Young again in Indiana. A lot of the dig laws contain provisions for the excavator to ask for assistance in finding a facility. In most cases, particular to Telco, so Andrea, there's no contact person or number for this. The um, only contact is the subcontract locator. Why? I don't think that you'd be able to address that as an industry-wide uh, piece. It sounds like it would be more more company-based, but do you have recommendations for how you handle it to, to have a full contact list? You know, that's a great question. Uh, <laughs> um, we try to just develop our own contact list, if you will. Um, like, as a matter of fact, we just created our own 811 dashboard just last year. So we go to like, it's a central repository for everything. So, cause we're trying to make things more one-stop shopping. Um, so I, honestly, that for that something like that, we just probably have our own little cheat sheets and our own Excel docs for it. So, sure, that's that's the best um, probably answer I can give on that. Oh, go ahead, Mark. I want to support Andrea on that. I think that what she said was um, uh, she uh, she hit the nail on the head. Um, if you wait until you have a situation like that, you're going to be scrambling and not likely to connect to the individuals that you really need to plan for it. Plan for it now and uh, for the upcoming season. Reach out and, um, you know, if you feel like you hit a dead end, 
see if just try from another vantage point or go to the um, local community uh, tell them that you feel frustrated that um, you know the municipality public works you feel frustrated that you're 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 trying to get some buy-in um, when this type of uh, situation happens I think we've all been in there with you know you 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 can't locate the facility maybe it's too deep uh, maybe it's not where it's a, maybe it was abandoned I mean but start now, not not when you have the need. So we very recently started a, a new program called Unlocatable. And so we will actually bring a crew out and we will dig. Uh, we won't put the burden onto the contractor. If they've got a ticket, we're gonna go and locate that ticket. And if we if our locator is unsuccessful, then we bring in our uh, crews and they will dig as if they were the contractor to locate our facility. We believe is part of damage prevention that it's critical that we know exactly where our facilities are located and we're able to disseminate that information to protect both the contractor performing the excavation as well as our community. Yeah, we do the same. Uh Contractors trying to locate a, a water main that they're going to cross. Uh, if they give me a call, say we, we can't find it on the marks that the locator put in. Our system inspector rushed out, and if he gets a, a tone in the same spot, and, you know, and the measurements line up, and you know, he'll stay with that contractor until he finds it. If it's a, a mismark or an untonable or we'll get our own vac truck over there and have a vacuum excavator located for them uh yeah. especially on critical mains you know, on a critical main we we want to see it our, our high pressure mains our feeder mains uh, we want to see that every time it's going to be directional board over or under uh, soil board near dug around and if the contractor or is having the trouble uh, uh, uncovering it, then we'll go over and, and do the job for them. <clears throat> yeah, we're, we're pretty similar to that. I mean, we're going to try to work with the contractor first, um, specifically because they already have the excavation equipment out there. They've got the dig ticket, right? And if we can work alongside the contractor to help expose those unlocatable facilities, we'll do that. Ultimately, it's our facility and it's our responsibility to locate those facilities. So if we're not able to, um, you know, work alongside the contractor, unfortunately, then we we have to shut down the job. Then we have to bring our own resources out there, whether it be a vac truck or a backhoe or, you know, just a crew to get out there and hand dig. And, and deeper facilities seem to be the ongoing issue that I think we're probably all encountering since our right-of-ways and easements are shrinking. Um, every time a new infrastructure comes in or is upgraded, um, we just don't have any more room. And so the thought process, I think, for a lot of these contractors and including our own our own folks is to go deeper. Um, but the deeper we go, the harder it is to find. Um, so that just adds to delays, you know, for everybody's project down the road. So, you know, first off, we're we're speaking with our own teams to say, you know, let's bury it to spec, right? No more than three feet, because anything deeper than that gets difficult to locate. Um, and then let's make sure that we're able to get that located going forward. Another question that deals with an, an issue that the industry has been having of late locates. During the construction season, we would often, I'm sorry, we often would have to wait nearly a week for all the facilities to be located. Even emergency tickets 
take six hours or more. Would you charge the at-fault party the cost of waiting for those locates as well? Wow. We, we don't have that luxury in California. We have uh, the 48-hour rule, so we're required to locate that facility within 48 hours. In emergency, we recognize that we don't want a sewage spill to impact the community. So we're going to get out, we're going to hustle out there uh, as quickly as possible. We do have on-call crews who can roll out to these emergency tickets and take care of our communities, take care of our customers. Andrea? My answer would be no. <laughs> Just simple. <laughs> yeah. No, we can't do that. Yeah. Mark? That's on, that's on us or my locators. Yeah. We always hear horror stories, but, um, you know, there, there's timelines that have to be met for locating facilities. Yeah. This, well, this, I'm sorry, Karen. Oh, I was going to move on. So if you have something to say, feel free. No, I was just going to go to Bob and see if he had anything to add to that. No, uh, you know, we have a gentleman's agreement of two hours. Uh, our contractor does our locates for us. Does a, again, a very good job of getting to the locate in that, within that two hour period of time. Uh, there may be other companies that were out there waiting to fix a water main break at, we're waiting on, waiting on, and, you know, it's two or three o'clock in the morning. We're making phone calls to try to find out, you know, where this uh, locating company is and trying to keep from sitting out there for four or five, six hours. But no, our in-house uh, locator does a very good job. Even on uh, their, uh, their daily locates, the uh, uh, normal notice ones, I think they're at least at zero or one percent uh, of the tickets that uh, they're not laid on. I mean, they do, do a good job. Yeah, for us, I mean, it's an ongoing issue with locate uh, late to locate. Um, State of Illinois had one, over 1.6 million um, ticket requests last year, um, so you know it's it's always a struggle, but. You know, to Andrea's point, my short answer is no, we don't charge for that. And we typically don't reimburse for contractor downtime for that either. Now we get into some mapping and there's a really good point for facility owners to make sure that anytime a map is updated, that your information gets to your 811 center as well. So that's just a reminder for everyone. Um, another question is, do any of the facility owners require GIS confirmed as belt as builds? We don't require them, but we certainly work with our contractors to incorporate the as-built into our mapping. Um, if there's any deviation from the initial work order or the initial design, right? So if we designed it on the east side of the street and we didn't have the room to put it there, we had to put it on the west side of the street, we're certainly going to want to you know, make sure that that gets updated on our map. So we do have a process for that. Okay. Another question coming in from Todd Brown is, is a great one. It's about fiber optic sensing solutions. Um, to make assets smart in in lieu of the panelists being able to prepare, I would like to table that question in the hopes that our panelists will be able to to join us again when we revisit this topic most likely in March and give them some time to prepare. Uh, James Wingate uh, is back. He said, thank you panelists for the thorough responses to my question. A follow-up thought. As we see in the DIRT report, the percentage of damages from no ticket is no longer decreasing. 
It has been stagnant at 26 to 30 percent for the past few years. I'm hearing that people causing these damage are aware of 811, but are choosing not to use the system because they don't trust the system. Some of it is due to no marks, late marks, and miss marks. But part of it is also due to the policy of sending the full bill to the excavator when both parties are at fault. Previous example about the one day, but the facility being mismarked by four feet. Utility operators may wish to reconsider this policy so the excavators don't view the relationship as adversarial. That's more of a thought. Um, let me. Tracking. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Uh, I think that he makes an excellent point. Um, the vast majority of time that we see a damage, it's because there wasn't a request for a locate or there wasn't a valid locate. That's just the reality of what we see. Um, most of the time, there's usually a breakdown in communication. A contractor, Andrea commented on it earlier, a contractor who has hired a sub, a sub who has maybe hired a sub-sub. A um, there is a breakdown in the communication as to who called in or who was going to call in the locate. I see it happen frequently within the, the, the construction company. The, the person who maybe normally does it was on vacation or, you know, it was a busy season. Uh, it slipped through. It happens. I, I would say the vast majority of time what we see is the unintentional non-811 call. I've rarely ever heard of someone who says, I don't have faith in the facility being located or in the 811. That's just my perspective. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I would I, also like to address that when I get a chance. Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, I don't think we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? If If you've got a situation where you're one call isn't working, whether it be for a particular utility or the process as a whole, um, then I think it's incumbent upon the excavator to, to reach out and, and work to get that situation fixed, right? Because it's the safety of your team, uh, your crews that are out there digging without marks on the ground. And, you know, our thought process is nobody ever in intentionally goes out there without a dig ticket. We think it's more so as to Mark's point, unintentional. Maybe it'd be a lack of awareness or a time situation, whatever the case may be, but we never think that anybody really goes out there intentionally. And if somebody is going out there intentionally because the process is broken, um, this is part of our damage prevention process, right? Here's my name, here's my phone number. Give me a call on the spot when the situation is happening because I can't, I can't help you if I don't know that it's broken, right? And I can't help you if you don't reach out to me to to assist you with it, right? So if you're not getting a response from my utility, I, I want to know about that because, you know, my job is to protect my facilities and to protect the folks that are working around our facilities. So if we're, you know, sidestepping the process, that's, that's an even greater damage in my opinion, an even greater danger in my opinion. If it's I, okay uh, with the, oh, Dane, you had one other comment. I'm sorry. Yeah, the we we actually do track uh, and interview each person that was involved in a no call and ask them, hey, what's the story here? Um, so that we can look at how we might be able to approach reaching that target audience. Was it what was the real cause? And sadly, James is is partially correct in that there are contractors who consider uh, time to be part of their cost and they don't want to wait the time for uh, calling in a, a no USA 
or a, a USA ticket or excuse me, an 811 ticket um, because it's going to take time for all the different foot owner operators to get out there and mark those utilities. And so they just build it into their cost of doing business. And believe it or not, 50% year over year of our uh, damages are caused by no 811 tickets. Um, now, while the number of 811 tickets has quadrupled, the the percentage has remained the same. Um, the majority of, because of the California laws, the vast majority of them are homeowners because they're not required to call 811. Uh, they're, so, but we still do have our contractors who choose to purposefully build that into their business structure. And it's a, it's unfortunate. Uh, there has been a change in the law here in California that if they do cause injury or death, that they get uh, a significant financial penalty uh, and loss of their license to operate. So they're trying to put some teeth behind those people who uh, who aren't complying with the law. And Karen, if I could just interject that yes. warning signage is not a locate. We, we, you know, with the rhino markers and the, all the markings we have out there, it's wonderful, but that is not a locate. It is an approximate, it's, it's, a, it's a good reminder that there's facility in the area, but we should always assume, we should always assume that there's facility in the area. Very true. I would like to thank Kelly for moderating. I would like to thank all of our panelists. As I've mentioned a few times, I, we will be revisiting this topic in March. I have, um, I've made some notes. I would like to include voices from the locators, Sue, as well as Nuka. Um, I think to have a full conversation, which is what we pride ourselves on, we need to have their voices held here as well. I appreciate all the contractors that were um, asking questions and sharing their opinions, but I'd like you to be on the panel next time. So. Uh, with that, thank you very much for participating. I appreciate everyone. Please take a, a chance to do our survey. Um, Raymond, we have to we have to go back to work. <laughs> um, we'll be in touch with everybody. But if you have additional questions, um, please feel free to email me and I will get those to the panel so that we can start addressing where we've left off. Thank you thank so you much so and much. have a great day. Thank you. See you thank in Tampa. You. See you in Tampa. Yes, yep. see you in Tampa. <laughs>